Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast about mainframes and mainframe-related topics. And we have a very special guest today. Our guest is the most requested uh, person to talk on Terminal Talk. I think even before the first episode, we said, this is something we, we think we want to do. And they said, you know who you need to have on? Bob Rogers. Bob Rogers. So not only did we say Bob Rogers, but then if you check the mainframe subreddit, um, the most often person asked, the most person often asked. Want to try that one more time? One. <laughs> the guy everybody wants to hear. Mathematically, it has to work out eventually. <laughs> is, is Bob Rogers. So our guest is none other than Bob Rogers. So who, who are you? What, what do you do? Uh, hi, my name is Bob. <laughs> hi, Bob. I, uh, I used to work for IBM for 43 years, and I'm here to see what, uh, what Frank wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a long list of things. Now, last I looked you up in Blue Pages, last time you were there, you had the title of, of MVS Philosopher. How does one aspire to be the, the MVS philosopher? Well, basically, you hit the edit profile button okay. <laughs> All right. in Blue Pages, and you type in what you want. Interestingly, I was, um, I was contacted by an IBM fellow who I had never had any interactions with and didn't even, you know, nowhere near his area. And I can't remember what it was he wanted to talk to me about, but the first thing he asked was, What's an MVS philosopher? <laughs> In later years, uh, I changed it to MVS designer slash philosopher. Uh, the reason for the philosopher is, you know, when IBM goes through their list of uh, people that are going to be former employees, I thought, <laughs> I thought if they found out they only had one philosopher, they'd keep me. <laughs> and designer was kind of like what I really did. It, you know, because if you... If you did a search in this directory, you could search by, you know, like job, job, whatever. If you put in philosopher, it didn't come up with a list. It came <laughs> up with my face. Right. So, and That's, it was effective. It was, uh, I made it all the way to 2012. <laughs> yeah, it took a while for them to catch up with you. It did. It did. <laughs> so you've, you've been doing this for a very, very long time. And now you're doing VM. Right, but but the forty-three year tenure was all MVS, right? Uh, true. Well, actually, going all the way back to MVT. What what what's MVT? That was uh, um, multiple virtual. Oh, I'm sorry. It was MFT oh. and MVT. Oh, can we can we say that? <laughs> MFT. <laughs> was uh, multi-programming with a fixed number of tasks where you could set up a number of partitions and run jobs in those partitions. Typically, the machine was only big enough to have three. And then there was the, the real giant operating system, MVT, which was uh, multi-programming with a variable number of tasks where you could start a number of initiators and dynamically they would acquire enough core memory to run the job that they had selected from the job queue. And back then, was, core memory was actually cores. Was actually and, cores. It was these little ferrite donuts that, um, <laughs> uh, as Bob I was told, a, I never actually witnessed it, but they told me that little gray-haired ladies would sit you know, in front of a magnifying glass, putting three wires through each of these little things, and it ended up uh, as you know, kind of like a square thing. 
looking ever so much like that um, summer, you know, summer camp project of making a potholder. <laughs> Only it was little tiny wires going through, and I mean, the technology was really at its end because you couldn't possibly make these little things any smaller than they were right. in their in their last generation. So it's a good thing they came up with what at the time was called monolithic memory. And what's what's that look like? Well, it's memory that's in the chip. Okay. And not not in an not external sewn together thing. by a bunch of gray hair yeah, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> so M that was MF, MFT. Well, MFT. I was an operator of. I never actually developed on MFT, but I did do software development on MVT. And that was the next step. Well, actually, there was a time when um, when 360 was new that IBM had three different operating systems. Because the small machines were, like, pitifully small. When I first started as an operator for IBM, I was working on a 32K. Let me repeat that. Kilobyte. Um, I mean, you can't even write a module that small anymore. But that, that was the whole machine, 32 kilobyte model 30. And the biggest machine we had was a um, half a megabyte, which, we, of course, that's not what we said. What we said was 512K. Yeah, it sounds like a whole lot more. Yeah, <laughs> it was 512K, uh, high-end uh, model, model 60. It was, it was a 65. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, then one Saturday, I went in, even though I wasn't working, wasn't getting paid, to observe the upgrade of one of these machines to one megabyte. Wow. Yeah, and three selector channels, three <laughs> high-speed channels, so that you could have a lot of DASD. They have to bring in like a forklift for that, or <laughs> well, for the uh, for the extra channel, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you you've been doing this stuff for for a long time, and you've I he keeps saying that. Well, he's <laughs> it's it's hard to find somebody on this show who's older than me, right? So that is very any, true. Anytime we get one, I think it's really uh, important because I remember. Being a new hire and and you know looking up to Bob Rogers, so uh, what would be your favorite thing that that you've worked on in the in the fifty million years uh, since you started? Well, I think I think my favorite thing, of course, was my most successful thing, which was to successfully guide the software part of the platform into a sixty-four bit architecture in a way that didn't break the back of the developers or delay the delivery so much that the competition was able to keep up with us. That um, it, it, It's a long story, but uh, basically I'm sort of responsible for uh, IBM being the only, uh, I'll call it, physical mainframe provider. <laughs> there are people who provide emulators that run on uh, what you might call distributed systems. Um, but right now, as far as I know, IBM's the only manufacturer that actually has to manufacture a mainframe, you know, physically. Right. And you were talking before about how that came about. Perhaps you could tell that story. Well, you know, if the audience will give me the indulgence of telling a long-winded story <laughs> that starts with Jeff Fry. <laughs> the ESA architecture was brand new, and IBM had come out with... Uh, a 3090 processor that supported this new architecture. And IBM decided that we have to give some education to the field people. So they create this event 
where two people, a lead SE and a lead marketing rep, are going to come to this meeting uh, from all 400 of the then IBM branch offices. And we're going to break it into two days, 200 uh, branch offices one day, 400 people, and the same the second day. And Jeff Fry got it into his head that they really need to know the architecture. Now, I'm no Jeff Fry, but I knew that was stupid. (laughs) But that didn't prevent me from being the guy who had to do it because Jeff couldn't go. So I go to to North Dallas to the – I think it was at the Grand Kompinski or something like that. (laughs) Anyway, um, and, you know, there's a bunch of IBMers there, and um, I have to give my presentation. But I'm not really interested in hearing any of the other presentations. So I'm kind of, you know, just walking around the halls. And I run into this uh, lovely young lady. She turns out to be the IBM representative's uh, marketing rep to the state of Utah. And uh, at the time, uh, Cold Fusion was quite the buzz, so we chatted a little bit about that, and she got my mailing address so she could send me a Cold Fusion (laughs) keychain. But then she found out what I was doing there. She said, oh, yeah, uh, you know, my my customer buys a lot of stuff from IBM, but not the mainframe. You know, the processor they get from Amdahl, and Amdahl has come and spoken to my customer, praising the ESA architecture to high heaven, but saying, but don't worry, by the time you need it, we'll have it, meaning Amdahl will have it. And this really stung, mostly because it was true. <laughs> that, uh, as I would say, even at the time, ESA was a solution that was screaming for a problem. Uh, because we had delayed solving the virtual storage problem with XA for so long, we were very sensitive. We said, well, we don't want to suffer that anymore, so we're going to come out with a solution early. And it turned out, you know, it's like a knife edge. There's a real problem with coming out with a solution too early, and that is it doesn't give you any competitive edge. So I remembered this. And then through what is another long-winded and interesting story, I became the lead software designer for moving the platform uh, into the world of 64-bit. I was not going to make a big, you know, multi-year project Uh, and solve all the problems all at once and, once again, give wiggle room to our PCM competition. So I came up with a kind of minimalist kind of... I I tell people that my most successful project was due to my most most sterling qualities, laziness and (laughs) risk-averseness. That we came came out with uh, in OS 390, uh, release 10... We came out with support for real storage above 2 gigabytes so that you didn't have to have expanded storage and all that expanded storage overhead and all of the – well, there was a lot of overhead. There was – we had one benchmark that ran on a 10-way processor that one – that the equivalent of one whole processor was devoted to spinning on one RSM lock. <laughs> that one-tenth of the total compute capacity on a 10-way was completely pissed away. <laughs> so this was a good thing for you know the high-end customers that were, uh, depending on expanded storage, to augment their measly two gigabytes of central storage. So anyway, I said, this is what we're going to shoot for. We're going to get this out timely. And by timely, I mean two months before the machine came out. 
<laughs> because OS 390, release 10, uh, shipped to customers, GA, in September of the year 2000. The machine didn't actually come out till two weeks into December. So we were able to very proudly tell our customers, if you've already picked up release 10 and you've got it sitting in your closet waiting for you, know, you to get around to <laughs> installing it, you might consider expediting that installation uh, you know, if you're getting one of these new machines because it already has what in those days these called Easter egg, mm-hmm. a hidden goodie <laughs> uh, that actually supports the new architecture. And I was told by uh, individuals who later worked for IBM that worked for PCM competitors at the time that this lack of wiggle room was what motivated them to basically get out of the physical mainframe business. Wow. So did, did you have any- Jeff Fry did it all. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any inkling that might be the case as that was going on? I, did, I didn't know whether they would actually exit. I always wondered how it was that in the bad days of the early 1990s when IBM was losing money, how we could lose money with 80% market share and they could make money with 20% share between the two of them. But I, I, I have to confess, I had a mandatory accounting class that I was supposed to take at Marist College and I, I decided I was, just wasn't going to do it. I just wasn't going to do it. I was going to apologize afterwards, which I did, and I still graduated. <laughs> but I don't really understand the phenomena, but uh, I'm sure people with bigger brains that Jeff Fry probably understands. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, because he's not here. But I did know that it wouldn't allow them to do what they had done in the late 1980s when ESA architecture was first introduced to be able to go to their customers and say, don't worry about it. So it sounds like you're driven very much by challenges. Someone says, this can't be done, or this shouldn't be done. That's, that's what draws your eyes well, to Well, the, the real thing that drives me starts with the same letters as the word challenge, but it's chance. Okay. That I'll tell, I'll tell another long-winded story, if uh, you will indulge me. How Yay. did I become the lead software guy for 64-bit architecture uh, transition? Well... I used to spend quite a bit of time, well, I spent most of my time actually working with people that I had no business talking with, but <laughs> I, it just was more emotionally satisfying to work with people that I didn't have any problems with. So I used to spend time with uh, the ladies that worked in the market support group. They were the ones that, that created all the glossy deliverables uh, whenever we came out with something new to try and you know take what we had done and put its best face on. And um, one of these ladies, Mary Moore, uh, came up to me one day and said, Bob, you know, other platforms are coming out with 64-bit machines, 64-bit architectures, and so forth. We need a short white paper on why the mainframe doesn't need it. Hmm. So I wrote a one-and-a-half-page little white paper. You could call it almost a white sheet if the font was just a little bit smaller. <laughs> could have fit on one side of a piece of paper. Um, about why, because we had the ESA architecture with expanded storage, data spaces provided us the additional virtual. Uh, expanded storage provided us the additional <laughs> processor memory. And I explained that being the big guy, the mainframe needed to go beyond 31-bit or 32-bit earlier than these other platforms. So we had to come up with 
I'll call it an ad hoc solution because in those days, you couldn't build with circuitry a 64-bit machine and, like, fit it into a house <laughs> um, if all the buses had to be expanded that much. So we came up with the, the stopgap solutions of the ESA architecture and expanded storage. And, in fact, today, meaning on that day that I wrote that sentence, we were actually a 35-bit th- machine. Huh? And we had room to expand, but I even confessed that obviously at some point we're going to have to come up with a uniform 64-bit architecture because you, you, know, you can't follow this path of data spaces and expanded storage forever, but we're cool today, which is all I wanted to establish. <laughs> so it turned out that there was a young lady also who was passing through the market support group before having an assignment in Paris and then coming back and being the MVS design manager at a time when the engineers in Germany wanted to build a 64-bit machine. Y'all keeping track of this? <laughs> so I told you it was a winding story. I can throw a map up on it's the projector been, if you want. It, it, went, it went to Paris and back. Well, anyway, um, so she came back and she was looking for somebody to work with the architects and engineers because she didn't have anyone in her design group who was available to do so. And she remembered that this Bob Rogers guy had written a paper sort of on (laughs) sort of like that subject because I was the guy who said we don't need it. So, of course, he would be the best guy to, you know, help the the architects and engineers uh, implement it. So that's how I got on the team. It was supposed to be like a 10% loan, short term, ended up being probably 135% for four years. <laughs> there was a long time, actually, that I was the only software person on the team because everybody was you know, tied up with, with other stuff, which gave me a lot of freedom, and that was, that was good. So that's, that's how I became you know, the leader of the team, and I always lead kind of from the side, never from the front. I will say, to, to my own credit, if I may do that, you, you may. that one of the, the manager of the developers who were writing most of the code said to me one day, Bob, you're the only designer who comes down and talks with the developers every day. And I did that because we didn't have time for them to veer five degrees to the left. They ha- we had to stay right on mark. And I had two meetings, two meetings, huge, huge, important project, a project that eventually led to IBM being the only main hardware, you know, physical hardware mainframe provider, two meetings. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> the fact that you only had two meetings. Proud as punch. <laughs> Frank feels bad. I didn't invite him to either. <laughs> no, it was very important, and I was just the nobody. I get it. I could tell you another story. <laughs> I could tell you how, you know, ZOS today supports, I believe, over 100 CPUs in a single image. Well, back when we only supported 16, and we came out with the Z900, the first Z architecture machine, and it had 16 processors. Me, who really tries not to prognosticate out into the future, I said, you know, we've hit a limit here. We're not going to be able to support anymore. So why don't we, you know, just as a philosopher saying this, why don't right. we, as a development organization, why don't we break through this barrier and write the code to support more than 16 CPUs in a single image? 
So we had a meeting in a, a conference room that was maybe a little bit smaller than this, filled with every heavyweight in the MVS development community. And I could, other than, <laughs> other than one guy from the performance group who his opinion was, if Bob's willing to do this, I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> Nobody agreed with me. Some people said, oh, well, you know, the way the MP curve goes, we're not really going to get a lot of... What, what's, uh, what's the MP curve? That, that as you add more processors, you get less and less from each additional one so that theoretically there would be an asymptote mm. that, you know, it rises and rises and then it flattens out. And then, in fact, and this did happen in some... Microsoft NT environments, it actually would go negative. <laughs> that, oh, with five processors, I have 10% less CPU capacity than I had with four. Um, so I said, oh, yeah, you've been you know, believing our own BS. <laughs> because at the time, we had these CMOS processors that were like 15 MIPS each. And uh, Hitachi, one of our competitors, had like a 50 MIP engine. And they later on came out with a 100-MIP engine. And uh, we were, I don't know, spreading some, what today would be called, I guess, fake news. <laughs> but having large, a large, large single-system image is a bad idea. The same way that, that Sun didn't say that centralized computing was a good idea until they came out with the UE-10,000, which was big enough to do it. But when you don't have anything that's Funny big that. enough to do centralized computing, you, you have to say, no, that's a bad idea. And then the other thing was, oh, it's all over the code. It would be a huge project. And the third one was, no, Bob, parallel cisplex is the answer. Now, those who know <laughs> politics in Poughkeepsie know where that came from. <laughs> but anyway, so... That sounds like another half hour right there. <laughs> lazy and risk-averse as I am, I actually wrote the code myself. Now, these were in areas that I had no experience with. I, I call it designed by cross-reference. I knew some fields that had to do with multiprocessing, the how many processors are on the machine. So I went into the cross-reference, and I found all the modules that reference those fields. Then I looked at all those modules and see what other fields they reference. Then I went back into it, and I kept doing this until it converged. And uh, I almost, almost got everything. <laughs> uh, as a side note, in order to test this, I had the engineers build a 17-way Z900 to take the spare processor and make it so you could actually use it. And I had to write some software that there, there's a communication between the hardware and the software to say what's there. They didn't want to write the, the, millico, the microcode to tell the truth that there's 17. So I wrote software that would lie and say that there's, you know, 17. And we... With the help of Jim Mulder, we IPL'd the system twice, took two standalone dumps, and found two bugs in my code where there was something that I hadn't considered the possibility of what if you have more than 16 processors online? Because the VM system that I was testing on, I was only allowed to have 16 guest, you know, virtual processors. So I could, I proved that the code worked no matter what the addresses of the CPUs were, but I never actually even tested what if you've got more than 16 concurrent online. So with these two IPLs, two standalone dumps that Jim shot for me, I was able to fix those two problems, and that basically put the thing to bed. That it was... You had two mistakes. That's it. Wow. Yeah. 
And once you got rid of the 16 barrier, there's... Well, then, like, then two years later, I'm on the... I, I, I turn around and I'm fighting the other way to going... 128, you guys are out of your minds. <laughs> Parallel cisplex is the answer. <laughs> I, even, I even gave a presentation at a, a Share Lunch and Learn right after I retired, and then I wrote some IBM Systems Magazine articles based on that presentation that basically said you really need to get into Parallel cisplex if you want to continue to grow because the overhead curve is different for cisplex as you have more engines, total engines, than it is for single system image. So there is a point when you do want to switch over, but I didn't want to force customers into parallel cisplexes that could only have 16. That Even before I retired, I knew of customers that ran 32-way, and I was very happy about that. Could you, could you go uh, – I just want to circle back a little bit. You were talking about there's different types of politics uh, at play for adding more CPs versus parallel cisplex is the answer. And you, you mentioned a little bit like there is a crossing over point. Like how, how, what was the argument for parallel cisplex versus just getting bigger, bigger processors? Well, the argument for parallel cisplex was, is I didn't really hear your question, but the answer is parallel cisplex. <laughs> And we can just kind of insert technology here from there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how does a Bob Rogers, uh, as Frank pointed out, that you've, you've been working at this for a long time, you've seen uh, the new technology kind of come and go. How do you know what to latch on to and what to say, this is worth my time and attention? I, I don't know how to describe it, but I do have fairly good instincts. I can't think of any right now, but there were a number of technologies <laughs> that I didn't bother to learn anything about. Although I did get in really big trouble, bad mouthing, MSIS for setup <laughs> in a share presentation in order to maintain my own credibility. You know, I do this goodie bag for every release of MVS or OS 390 or ZOS, depending upon the time frame, going all the way back to MVS 4.3 was my first one uh, back, I guess that was the early 90s. Anyway, I needed to, uh, you know, talk about what's new, and I couldn't think of anything good to say about it. <laughs> but unfortunately, the young guy, the young goer who was, uh, you know, kind of spearheading the thing, later in my career became my manager. <laughs> did, did he remember that day? I'm I sure. I think he did. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Yes. Well, there's a number of times when I've gotten in trouble on the inside for, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why customers really appreciate me, because they know that if I'm going to bullshit, there's got to be a really good reason for it. I'm not just <laughs> going to do it as a knee jerk. Um, at one point, the guy who was the lead designer of Parallel Sysplex put in a uh, you know, request to give a presentation at Guide on the architecture underneath it. But because not all of the patent work was done, the lawyers would not, and this makes sense, they would not let him, you know, like invalidate all the patents by speaking publicly <laughs> about something that, for which the patents hadn't been filed. Yeah, pay those okay, so now what do you do? Do you call up and cancel a presentation? No, you send Bob, Bob Rogers <laughs> to give a presentation that doesn't match the title or abstract. <laughs> 
that's what you do in order to save face. So, uh, so I ended up there at Share. This one was a real challenge for me. I actually went to the, uh, went to the room like 15, 20 minutes before I needed to, and I had a little Walkman at the time, and I played music to try and get myself, you know, kind of like psyched up and, you know, at a good place. And I gave what I think was really a great presentation. But some of the IBMers who were involved in designing Parallel Sysplex didn't like it because they wanted to say Parallel Sysplex is a whole new architecture. Now, I've never been a system programmer, but I can kind of put myself in their shoes and imagine that the IBM Corporation has come out and said, we have a whole new architecture, <laughs> right? Several of the older people will have heart attacks. The younger ones will only be a palpitation. Uh, so I said, it's not, it is a new architecture, but it doesn't replace the old. Everything old is still there. It's, it's kind of like a bolt-on. It's an augmentation. <laughs> and I'll tell you, these developers didn't like it. They said, look, we came up with the messaging, and you should have followed it. And I said, you know what? If you wanted your message to get out, you should have been the one standing at the front of the room. When I'm standing in the front of the room, it's my message that gets out. And, of course, I survived that. <laughs> But it probably didn't help me that much. <laughs> That's why you don't have fellow in your title. No, I, well, I, I almost didn't want to become, I didn't want to become a distinguished engineer. It was offered to me one year, and I said, let me think about it. You know, because I'm thinking of John Lennon, you know, working class hero is something to be. And I, and I said, you know, I don't know if I can make this transition to management, because in addition to a distinguished engineer being the highest, basically almost the highest level of technologist within the IBM corporation, they're also considered management. So I postponed <laughs> for a year, but then I was talking to uh, the husband of one of my wife's cousins, and he said, oh, they probably have a different retirement plan. So I checked into it, and I said, yeah, this doesn't look bad. Little did I realize that it would lead to earlier retirement, <laughs> which actually, in the end, worked out very well for me, that I'm very, very happy with, uh, with getting off the bus that I was on for 43 years and getting on a number of new buses. Yeah, uh, rumor has it that you write Rex code now. Um, I'm relatively a novice Rex programmer. Um, but for, you know, if there's anybody who's a VM user here, um, it's going to get shipped. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, I, you know, people say, oh, assembler language. Why would anyone want to learn assembler language? I'll tell you, I have a very good retiree supplemental job working for IBM because I can write assembler language. Well, it's a self-documenting language, right? It is what it is. <laughs> Sure. As long as you know the three letters, you're good. You are good. Sometimes four. Sometimes four. That's true. Sometimes. Sometimes two. It's unambiguous. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so uh, it's safe to say that assembler is your favorite language. Uh, no, I, I used to really like the PLS language, which later on became PLAS right. and then became PLX. Hmm. Um, until they introduced object-orientedness into it, <laughs> which for some reason I have a blockage in my brain. Like, I'm really smart about a lot of stuff, but I tried to learn uh, small talk mm -hmm. you know, many, many years ago. I tried right. to learn small talk, and it just didn't fit. 
It just didn't fit in my head. So, but anyway, I would uh, you know write programs in PLX because you didn't have to worry about like the linkage conventions or remember where do I save register thirteen and stuff. It handled stuff like that. Also, it had structures which kind of put some discipline on you. Uh, like if you have an if then else, you know that it's only going down. Whereas <laughs> I've seen some terrible spaghetti <laughs> assembler code. I mean, it's possible to write really good, clean, structured assembly. But it's not mandatory. <laughs> In a higher level language, it's a lot easier and, well, it's a lot even harder to make spaghetti. Although, I've seen that too. Some code that was written in the very early days by assembler programmers who would say, if A is greater than B, then go to. <laughs> they couldn't have a then do, they would just then go to. But anyway, and I would always look at the assembler code that it generated because I was interested in seeing what is this compiler doing on my behalf? What is the code that it's writing as my agent? And, and what I found out was that there's a lot of errors that you can commit, either bugs or poor performance, based on how you declare variables. That that's, but that's something that doesn't really show up in the code. Mm -hmm. Like if you're looking at the PLX, you don't see that, oh, well, I should have declared this as unsigned, because, look, I'm doing three instructions where I could have done it with one, and it would have worked. But now you're getting into the, I want to make this optimal, as opposed to, I want to make this work, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm out of the optimal stuff. <laughs> My saying to young programmers is, don't worry about how many instructions you use, just don't touch any data. Because that's what's really expensive, that the, the processor has gotten so fast but memory doesn't really get faster. The only way memory could get faster would be to get closer, and it really can't do that because we're taking advantage of whatever miniaturization we can with memory to have more of it, which obviously leads to a bigger performance boost than having memory closer <laughs> because we're, we're up to four levels of cache, right? I mean, it's quite rare in fact, you can see this in RMF reports. No, not, I'm sorry. The, um, the SMF records, I think it's type 113 or something like that, that gives you all this hardware counter stuff. You can see that, oh, maybe 3% of the time it actually has to go out to memory. Very, very, wow. relatively infrequent. If it's a decent program. Yeah. Why are you looking at me when you say that? Why? Like, like I don't write decent programs? Is that what you're trying to say? Also, I didn't even know you wrote programs. <laughs> hey, Frank, when I met you, you were in tools. <laughs> hey, man, look. Hey, you started in tools, you go back to tools. I think we have this episode's title. <laughs> so, so, Bob, other than this uh, outstanding session we're hosting right now, what, what other uh, – how do you spend your time at Share? Where are you going to – what uh, sessions are you going to go to? I'm going to go to the ones that I speak at. Okay. <laughs> I very seldom go to a session because I've, even when I was young, I had difficulty with being in a classroom environment. I would either fall asleep or be disruptive. Neither one of them is a big payoff when you're going to a Catholic grade school. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> so as a courtesy to my friends who are presenters, I don't go to their presentations. That's, that's not how I learn anyway. I, I learn through direct human interaction. 
which is a, a big part of share in other conferences. I yeah, learn more in the hallways. It's often. out. It's out in the hall. Right. It's out in the hall. And plus, I'm old. I don't need to learn much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have this fear. This has nothing to do with computing, but I think it does have to do with the human mind. That I had taught myself German from phrase books and from like high school textbook that would teach me the grammar of the language, right? And then I was going to go to Paris, so I said, I will, well, I'm going to learn some French from a phrase book. And it was a phrase book from one of the same publishers as, that, as I had used for German. And I found that as I was learning the French for the English phrase, it pushed out the German for it. It's almost like the phrases were in little pigeonholes, but there's only room for one thing in it. So as I learned the French, it pushed out the German. And since German would be more important to me because of the Berbigan lab, and I would go there at least once a year, usually twice a year, I thought it would be better to keep the German in the pigeonholes. So I'm afraid that like, if I were to learn C or Java, which, like every high school student knows, why should I, with 50 years' experience in this industry, learn a language that they teach in 10th grade? <laughs> I just have to find a 10th grader. In fact, I have a nephew who I can consult if I have any Java questions. So I don't... Of course, I, I mean, as a developer in, in the VM hypervisor, I have to learn a lot about VM. But that, that stuff somehow fits in well because I can see it sits next to how MVS does it. In fact, lots of times I already know the answer, and the revelation is to find out that I knew the yes. answer. <laughs> okay, so VM or MVS, which is better? Well, it depends. <laughs> When I was young, if they were trying if, to kill VM. That's, that's like a theme in IBM. At least three <laughs> huge attacks were made. And by the way, just to self-aggrandize, I stopped one of them myself personally. Um, but anyway, the executives were thinking, why do we need two operating systems? And the answer, of course, is because only one of them is an operating system. <laughs> because VM is a hypervisor. Right. And other people in our industry, decades later, saw the value of virtualization. Now, I don't know um, if, if any of you listened to my webcast that I did for New Era Software on the history of virtualization. Not meant to be a history of VM, but of course, because VM was the predecessor of all the other virtualization, it ends up being sort of a, a history of VM, starting with CP67. I, I may even actually try and see if I can give that here a chair. That would be good. I think, I it'd, be, I think it'd be interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a small VM users group in the Washington, D.C. area, and, uh, <laughs> and I gave the presentation. It was the first time I actually gave it to a VM audience. It didn't work out too badly. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it's great stuff. When I was an operator, the second year, is, I was two years an operator. My second year as an operator, I had to work second shift because in order to get all the classes that I needed in order to graduate from Marist at the time, I had to go to school during the day. So I went to school during the day. I worked at night, and I became one of the first operators of a, CP, of a, a Model 67 that they brought in and me and another operator made that 67 with CP67 running on it behave like four Model 50s. Boy, did we run around like crazy. <laughs> because we, we uh, 
And, and I saw the potential. Then, then over time, they made it so that you know people sitting at a terminal in a terminal room or in their office actually could dial in, attach all the disks that they needed in order to do their operating system testing. Because if you're testing an operating system, you really can't share. <laughs> you really, really <laughs> can't share. It I just made me realize that uh, we're all Marist grads. Yeah. So then, go Red Foxes. <laughs> so were you, uh, were you around when Pete Schneider said what he said at the... Yes, uh, yes. I, I, I wasn't there because I was developing a tradition of never going to the charitable con. <laughs> I would charitably com uh, contribute, but I wasn't going to contribute my time. Once they didn't have great speakers, like one year they had Isaac Asimov. And I was sitting right in the second row and he was in the front row right in front of me. And I found out that he wouldn't fly in an airplane. Here's a guy talking about rocket ships and galaxies and, you know, black holes and all of that. And um, he, he came by train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't like the, the outdoors either. He's a... Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I know the person you're speaking Yeah, we, we will say no more. We'll have a conversation about that later. <laughs> That'll be for our premium supporters. <laughs> Get hit, the hit up, hit inside Patreon. story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're um, we're actually coming to the top of the hour here, yep. uh, and we like to keep our podcast to, to fifteen minutes if we can, <laughs> neat and tidy. <laughs> so uh, I want to just take a quick second to thank you, Bob, for coming, and um, I'm sure the the audience here is definitely appreciative. <laughs> yeah, get that clapping noise on the podcast. <laughs> Live <laughs> and his from Sacramento. <laughs> it's Monday morning, I guess. Yeah, uh, so. all week. <laughs> here all week. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It was a uh, was a real pleasure, and I think we should do this again. Yeah, yeah. sure. That's yeah, a good idea. Uh, and thanks everyone for coming. And uh, fill out your session evaluation forms. <laughs> and uh, old man Charlie, run us out. Yeah. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.